Good morning. Man, this place looks good. You don't, you don't agree? <laughs> well, it's good to be here with you. Open your Bibles up if you'd be willing to the book of Titus. And uh, I was with uh, talking with, we have a number of people that pray for us pretty consistently and uh, um, intentionally. Not, not prayer chain stuff, but just praying for us and the churches we go to. And the Lord's really kind of raised some people up to do that over the last couple of years in particular. <clears throat> you have to excuse my coughing. It's this time of year. But um, I was telling them where I'm, where I'm going and they were praying. And they were like, it's almost heaven, Jesus. May it just be almost heaven. He was praying that and I was laughing. I was like, yeah. So he knew, he knew West Virginia. But... Um, you know, I was looking at uh, our time, and you have, uh, you know, Sunday morning's always a little bit, uh, uh, you know, guarded. There's a, there's a lot of things that we, we, we use Sunday morning for, um, you know, coming in and fellowshipping and, and, and seeing each other. Then you have Sunday school, which is extremely significant. Uh, and so we just don't have a lot of time that, you know, uh, extra time like we will perhaps tonight, you know. And, and your worship pastor, youth pastor said, we'll be here all night. So we're going to have a ton of time. This evening, but uh, I want to we'll look with you about some things uh, out of Ephesians that I've been studying this week, and uh, I think you're going to love it. And it's uh, looking at the heavenly realms. Paul uses that term five times in the book of Ephesians, and from just listening to him, you would be under the impression that the spiritual realm for the Christian is more real than the physical realm. And there are spirit beings that God created that we war against. Like we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. In other words, our, our biggest problems in life are not physical. And for the look at some of your faces, you're like, what is this guy talking about? It's, it's eye-opening. So I want you to come back this evening, if you would, 7 o'clock, and I'll be responsible with your time this week. But we want to look at that. Don't have time to look at it this morning because it will be a little bit more than a 25-minute thing. But I want to give you just a kind of a taste of it. And um, this is, again, we're looking at one of Paul's other letters. And we'll basically be looking at most of Paul's writings this week. And we're going to be looking out of Paul's letter to Titus. Paul wrote this letter uh, along with several letters. He, like, punched out a, 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 you know, a number of letters um, when he was in his second to the last imprisonment. His very last imprisonment wasn't there very long, and they end up, you know, uh, he ended up becoming a martyr. They killed him. But his second to the last imprisonment is when he wrote the letter to, you know, the church in Ephesus. He wrote this letter to Titus. He wrote uh, two letters to Timothy. He wrote Colossians, Philippians, you know, all these letters to these different churches. It was just a super significant time. He was an older man at that time, kind of, you know, many scholars say that was kind of like his manifesto letters at that point, just really writing uh, out of a history of God moving and working through his life for like 40 years. So it's just incredible. And uh, this is one of those letters we've been studying for some time. And if you were to kind of break down the letter, I'm, I'm extreme, uh, I, I go to extreme lengths to kind of establish context whenever you look at the scriptures. Because you can take the Bible out of context so easily. You know, people do it all the time. I remember when I was a, a brand new Christian, I'd you know, just gotten saved. God, was, God put a call on my life. I went to Olivet Nazarene University, that other university. And um, 
I had never really read the Bible. I mean, I'd been in church and I'd read the Bible, but I'd really never read the Bible. And um, I opened it up and was reading through Matthew. And in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, ask anything in my name and it will be given to you. And I remember thinking, that's my life verse right there, you know. I mean, I'm getting that thing tattooed on my arm somewhere. Never did. But, uh, you know, that's, you know, uh, uh, that can be a, a dangerous verse, especially when you take it out of context. You can make it say whatever you want. And there was context to that statement. Uh, the context of uh, what we're going to look at this morning, looking at the kind of overall letter of Titus, is Paul is writing to his protege. And in fact, if you have your Bibles open, you look just in the opening few verses of the letter, uh, the intimacy between Paul and Titus is evident. He says in verse 4, he says to Titus, my true son in our common faith. Okay, now, obviously, Titus wasn't his biological son, but this was the kind of relationship that he had with this guy. It was it just, he'd been around. In fact, if you go and study some of the, just what we know in the New Testament alone of Titus, Titus was there with Paul um, in his first time going down to Jerusalem and, you know, uh, uh, speaking to the 12 apostles and, and you know, just that whole emergence of his call. Paul, you know, Titus had been around for a long time. Uh, with him. And so probably 15 years after his call, but, you know, Titus was there. And so he, he, he writes this letter to him. Titus is in a, in a position of ministry in the uh, islands of Crete, which had been um, in, in his last missionary journey, kind of Paul had established a work there. And one of Paul's um, kind of approaches to his missions work is he would go to an area and he would be there for an initial period of time, sometimes up to three months, sometimes up to a year. But he would, he would begin this work there with this team. And then he would go on to the next place and he would leave behind someone who's going to continue the work. And in fact, it says in verse 5 of chapter 1, the reason that Paul left Titus, Titus there in Crete was that he might straighten out what was left unfinished and then specifically appoint elders. And so what Paul does in the first half of this letter, the letter is only three chapters, 15 verses, the first half of the letter is where Paul gives instruction to individuals in the church, to groups within the church. In fact, not, not a lot of people, including myself, you know, for, for a number of years, never really looked at the, at the church as an organized organism, okay? So within the church, there, is, there's, there are elders. He gives he gives uh, the definition of elders from verse 5 of chapter 1 down through verse 9. And elders are the leadership of the church. And leadership is not a, not a casual thing. There's specifics in regards to leadership. And specific, uh, specifically, the leadership is a deal with a specific group of people. And that's verses uh, 10 to the end of the chapter, verse 16. And that is the religious element within the church. I find it interesting. Hear this. There's all kinds of things that were going on in the first century with, with Rome. I mean, the culture that they lived, scholars tell us, was, was on the verge of the days of Noah. I mean, it was just deplorable. I mean, pedophilia was, was legal. It was normal. I mean, all the worst of what you can think of in terms of a societal norm, they had it in Rome. And the church was living within that and functioning within that, raising families within that. There were redeemed people. The Jewish world would be shattered in AD 70 and literally permeated all of, of Roman culture. And they're proclaiming in, you know, the message of Jesus Christ. They're ministering in that, in that culture. And I've often thought, you know, if you're going to live in that culture, what would be 
you know, what would be some of our concerns? I mean, could you imagine, could you, imagine you know, picking out nursery workers in Ephesus, you know, or, or Corinth, you know? Can you imagine what the teen group, you know, the, uh, the, the uh, Wednesday night teen group meetings would look like? I mean, these were, these were really heavy. This is a crazy, crazy area. And yet in all of Paul's writings, hear this, in all of Paul's writings, when he's talking about things that the body of Christ has to guard against, the one group that he mentions, he doesn't mention the, the sexual promiscuity of the Roman culture. He doesn't mention any of those kinds of things that come really from the Roman culture. He mentions this group from verse 10 down through verse 16. And they are religious people. They'll kill your church. They'll absolutely destroy your church. And the number one responsibility from elder, from a biblical standpoint, the number one responsibility of an elder is to not tolerate religion within the body of Christ. And you understand, when we're talking about religion, religion is very different than Christianity. See, both go to church, you know, both read their Bible, both claim to know Jesus, that kind of stuff. But see, we make a, a stark difference between going to church on Sunday and going to church on Sunday. So you can go to church on Sunday without going to church on Sunday. You can sing without having worshiped. You can give 10% without having tithed. See, religion is routine, it's, it's structure, it's, 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 it's kind of an organized you know, uh, business, so to speak. Christianity is about a person. Everything that I do has, has to do with the person. I was in Indiana. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I, I'm only going out every two weeks. I have kids, and long story there, but going out a little less than I used to, only about 30, 35 meetings a year. And, and I was in Indiana a couple weeks ago, and I was right down the road from a church that I'd went to in college. And um, it was it's one of the bigger churches, and I was asked to go there. I was excited about going and sharing, just, you know, in ministry and brand new. And I go to this church, and... Uh, I stand up to preach, and the pastor wasn't gone. He was actually, what, which is why I was invited. I had to do a fill-in because he was gone on, on, a, on something for the district. And uh, there was another pastoral family that was coming through the area, and they were going on vacation, but they had to go to church on Sunday. Jesus comes back, and you're not in church. You might not make it. Apparently, that was his thought. And uh, so I get up to preach, and I turn around, and I see that couple, the pastor and his wife and daughter, because I met the pastor before the service. So worship took place. Everything took place in the service. It was my turn to come up and present the word. So I come up. I'm this young guy, and I come to present the word, and I turn around, and I look, and right down there, um, I could see him, his wife and daughter, and his wife has this, this is way back in the day. So this is before cell phones, but she had this newspaper open. That's what I thought. And she had this newspaper open. And uh, you couldn't even see her or the daughter because they're leaning in behind it. And I struggled with a filter. I still struggle with a filter. But I, uh, I looked down and the, just it came out of my mouth. I was like, you got to be kidding me. You're reading a newspaper? And she folded it and she just glared at me. I was like, I'm not your husband. I don't care. You can boss him around. You can't boss me around. <clears throat> And it, it was just, it was pathetic. They knew better. Come on. Come on, they knew better. You know, I get it, you know. Hey, I understand teens. I know your kids. But this is, this is not, 
I'm just kidding. But this is, come on, I had kids as well, and they do bonehead things. But this is leader in the church stuff, you know? Oh, we got to go to church on Sunday morning, even though we're going on vacation. Dude, you didn't go to church. They come on, you were sitting in church, but you weren't here. It's not like God's going to be like, well, I was going to send you to hell, but you came to church every Sunday. Let them in. Don't give them a mansion. Give them a trailer. Come on. That's so, that's so silly. Isn't that silly? So this is the group that, this is the group you have to guard against, man. Come on. We're not casual. We're not apologetic for what we believe in. Like this is, this is legitimate stuff. And this is, this is the tone of his letter. Like this is Paul. This is, it's fantastic. First half of the letter, he's given instruction. Now, when you come into chapter 2, and we're going to have to hurry up here. But when you come into chapter 2, he, he gets into the other areas of church. He talks about older men, older women, younger men, younger women, and slaves. And we'll talk about, I'll have to give you some, it's not slaves like you and I think of slaves. Um, but these are, he gives you instruction on those individual groups. And then the last half of the letter, how all those groups work together, he gives you instruction on that. I want to focus with you this morning just really briefly <clears throat> on, uh, on the specifics of two specific groups, and it's from verses 4 through 8, and it's the godly younger women and godly younger men. Verse 4 is, and 5 is godly younger women, verses 6 through 8 is godly younger men. And there's a couple things we just have to say right at the start. When we're, when we're talking about these individual groups, first and foremost is, is it's not a it's not a list of do's and don'ts. It's not like, well, if you're, if you're going to come to church and you're, you want to be a godly older person, these are the things you have to do. That's not, that's not what he's doing. And if you want to be a, you know, a godly younger man, these are things you're supposed to do. These are, these are spiritual fruit that if you're a young man and you let the Holy Spirit into your life, this is what he's going to do in you. Beware. If you're a young woman and you let the Holy Spirit in your life, this is what he's going to do in you. This is what he's going to produce in you. Like, these are not up for grabs. This, they didn't vote. Paul didn't go around and vote on these. This is, Paul is saying, listen, I've, I've ministered for 40 years. If you let the Holy Spirit in your life, this is what he's going to, this is what a godly younger woman looks like, period. So beware. You let Jesus in your life. He's going to mold you in a specific way. And these are characteristics. Now, also, it tells us that these are not by age either. It's not like, how old are you? Okay, well, you're, no, you're not a young lady anymore. Old woman you are. <laughs> it's, that's not what it is. These are spiritual maturity. So if you have like a 16-year-old a girl and a 46-year-old girl, and they both get saved, in, in the spirit, in their relationship with Jesus, they're godly younger women. Because these are the, these are the this traits that God begins to work in your life. He begins to produce in your life. So these are not physical uh, age, like older women, younger women, you know, older men, younger men. These are not physical, they're spiritual. These are characteristics that the Holy Spirit produces in your life when he's living inside of you, whether that's initially or whether that's over a period of time. So I've had, in fact, it's, it's funny for me because I have women at camps and they'll come to me and they say, when do you, when do you get old? You know, when do you transition from a younger woman to an older woman? Well, as you walk with him, it's when you begin to walk with Jesus, the characteristics of a younger woman are going to, a spiritual brand new Christian, they're going to 
that's going to be uh, present in your life. God, God's going to begin to work on you. They're going to begin to be displayed. But as you mature, one day, you'll begin to have the characteristics of a godly older woman become evident in your life. They'll begin to be displayed. And then you'll be like, I'm getting old. Praise the Lord. Okay? So these aren't, these aren't physical. These are spiritual. Now, when you're looking at these characteristics, and this is the, it's the same with all the individuals in the church, but specifically with the godly younger women and the godly younger men, they have specific character traits. A godly younger woman is to be busy at home. I'd love to look at that with you. It does not mean what you think it means. The word home there doesn't have to do with structure. It has to do with family. I can make a biblical case for you, an irrefutable biblical case over several of Paul's letters, that the head of the home is the woman, not the man. The head of the wife, amen, tide just went up. The head of the man is the wife. So the head of the woman is the man, and the head of the home, which the man is a part of, is the woman. You're like, it sounds like that's equal. Yes, it is. That they both have roles in the home and they both have roles in the family. This is not like man's the boss and he, you know, he's the CEO. And no, that's not that's the world concept. That's not a biblical concept. So you have specific characteristics that are that are specific for women, and then you have specific characteristics that are specific for men. Okay, a woman is a woman and a man is a man. Now that's blurred in all culture, but that's not blurred in the scriptures. Okay? They're very definite. Now, in the midst of those specific character traits, there are also character traits that are universal, which means both men and women have them. For instance, if you're looking in verse 4, it tells you that the younger women, in verse 5, are to be self-controlled. Well, if you go down to verse 6, it says, similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. So there's universal character traits. There's character traits that whether you're a man or a woman, at whatever age, you if the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, you're going to have that. Okay? So these are universal character traits. I want to focus with you on one character trait in particular. This is so good. In verse 5, it's translated, so that, which is a character trait. If you go down, it says, uh, well, actually, just go ahead and read through verse 4 and 5. It says, a younger woman is to love her husband and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind to be subject to their husbands, hear this, so that, and so that is a character trait. And by the way, you see it also with the men. Look in verse 6. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that. What a neat character trait. That both for men and women, you have a so that character trait. And you'd say, well, what in the world is a so that? So that is purpose or reason. There is purpose and reason for your life, period. Now, for example, in Matthew, and if you want to look at this, you can, or I can just read it. But it's, it's really significant. It's, consequence, it's consequential language. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 6, this so that is the exact same Greek term that Paul uses. It's used in verse 9 for the reason or the purpose of Jesus' miracle. 
And if you know this, if you know this section, Jesus ends up healing a paralytic. But in verse 6, listen to this. He's, Jesus says, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, get up, take up your mat, and go home. And so what Jesus says in this, in this, in this instance, with this particular miracle, the specific reason for the miracle was to show the leaders of Israel that Jesus had authority on earth to forgive sins. That's what he says. He says, you need to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Therefore, get up, take your mat, and go home. Because back in the previous verse, he says, your sins are forgiven. So the purpose, this, this so that language is always purpose. It's always intention. This is the reason and, what, and I find this super significant when you're looking at the, the Titus passages. And again, put, put this together. The, the characteristics of a godly younger woman or a godly younger man, which means this is initial stuff in a brand new believer's life. When you first get saved, there's purpose and intention for your life. From the very beginning. Probably, obviously, not you guys, Okay just in all those other churches in the world. I run into these individuals in church who are not bad. Uh, they're certainly not evil. They go to church. They love Jesus. You know, they're not like, you know, secret serial killers out there roaming the streets. They're just normal, good people. But they just, they have a total wrong, skewed perspective of who they are in, in Jesus they have this idea that they're just non-sequential. They're non, that's not true. It's not, that's sequential, that's not the word. They're non-essential. Non-sequential. May not be non-sequential too, but it, specifically, they're just non-essential. They're, they're not important. One of the things that I'm finding is specifically in this letter, but in, in many others, you are absolutely significant in your world. In fact, the, the language that we use, I'm, I'm putting this together in a book, and I'm almost done with it. Praise the Lord. It's taken forever to write. But this, it's, it's over this, this section is in this, is, the whole chapter is over this so that language. And it, it's entitled Catalyst. And, I, and, and the word catalyst came up because my son is a huge chemistry fan. I don't know what's wrong with him. But uh, he just loves math and chemistry, which is weird, right? But... <laughs> But um, we were talking about this, and I was telling, sharing with him. He was like, it sounds like, a, like we're catalyst. And I was like, absolutely. What's a catalyst? <laughs> and a catalyst is a change agent in science. It's a change agent. It's, it's, it's catalyst. It's a catalyst for change. When you enter in this particular element, there's always change, period. That's us. Like you and I are to be, in fact, it's interesting. I was watching, you guys seen The Chosen? Anybody seen that? That You guys watched that? It's very binge worthy, by the way. It's, it's to watch it for long periods of time. It's super good. And one of my favorite parts at the end of season two is where Jesus, in fact, it's the last episode, verse eight. It's where Jesus is, uh, so this is a spoiler alert. I won't ruin too much of it. But uh, have you seen, okay. So it's where Jesus is preparing for the Sermon on the Mount. And he looks at, I wrote some of this down, he looks at, uh, he's with Matthew, as a matter of fact, and he's talking about his sermon. He's been working on this sermon. It's the Sermon on the Mount. It's so good. 
and he's, it's, he's talking about the salt of the earth. He's like, uh, there's this section on the salt of the earth, and Matthew's really confused because he's a literal guy. And I actually loved, I loved the commentary from the, the scholarly background in writing the, the show. And he said, in, he, goes, he goes, salt preserves meat and it slows decay. And then he looks at Matthew and he says, I want my followers to hold back the decay and evil of our world. And he says, salt also enhances flavor. He says, I want my followers to renew the world and be a part of its redemption. And then he said, salt also has healing properties, especially when you mix it with honey. He says, I want my followers to participate in the healing of the world's hurt, not its destruction. I was like, that's so good. And, and it's, it's inter- this, this imagery that Jesus uses to describe you and I, hear this, you are a direct result of the change that's supposed to take place in your community. One of the biggest frustrations, and just, if I could just, I mean, I'm gonna say it all week, but one of my biggest frustrations has been with American Christians is our lack of involvement in our, in our cities, in our nation, in what's going on. I, I go to places, and seriously, I, I go to places where it's like they just rant over everything that's going on in the community. Well, are you involved? Are you on, are you on the you know, school board? Are you on city commerce? Well, no. Then shut up. You have no right to complain. I actually meet young people who complain. They don't even vote. Are you kidding me? Come on, man. We got to be involved. And being involved is not just complaining on Facebook or some petition that I signed. Come on, it's got to be bigger than that. We're change agents in our community. That's who we are. That's who we're called to be. I'll give you three quick things really quickly before I cut you loose to Sunday school. We get seven minutes. Can we do it? Pastor said he's going to yank me off here if I don't. When we're looking at the catalytic nature, now again, and, and we don't have time to expand on this, but if you go back and look at what we looked at this morning, that a godly younger woman, he lists all the characteristics of what God does in her life so that no one will malign the word of God. For the men, all the characteristics of men are given so that those who oppose you would be ashamed. So there's reason and purpose for our life, okay? We're literally, we literally produce change in other people. If you live specifically with what God is doing in your life, if you live under his direction, you're going to make change. And there's three aspects of this that I found in this passage. I want to give them to you. Number one, if you, are a, if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you are going to be a catalyst by nature. Seriously, by nature. I've met, I've met parents. My wife and I work with inner city children and their, and their families. And I tell parents all the, all the time, you are producing a certain kind of child no matter what. Period. For good or, or bad. You are raising a child to talk a certain way, to act a certain way, to look at a kind of, you know, to, to, you know what they're going to be interested in, how they're going to treat a spouse, all of that. Why? Because you're a catalyst. If you're a human being, you bring change, period. If you don't want to be a good mother, you're going to be a bad mother. It's, it's not like, well, I, I choose not to be involved. Choosing not to be involved is still being involved. You are a catalyst, by the very nature of who you are. So as a Christian, 
When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you literally are going to produce change in the lives of those. Because it's the way you see. It's the way you feel. You cannot avoid it. And, and, and we got illustrations that we don't have time to go back and look at in this service. But if you go back and look at Genesis, when God, the way that God creates Adam, he tells him, you know, you're, you know I want you to guard and take care of the entire earth. You realize when Adam, and he did that, he named the animals, and there's, there's significance to naming. It wasn't just like he came up with names. He literally looked into the nature of these animals that God had created, and based on how the Father seen them, Adam named them accordingly. It's phenomenal. But when Adam fell into sin in chapter 3, it says that the earth and all the animals were subject to frustration. Why? Adam was a catalyst. Adam was a catalyst. I do. I really believe you can tell the vitality of a church by the community in which they live. You have a church that are saying, man, we're doing fantastic. Really? How are you, how are you impacting your community? How are you impacting your homes? How are you impacting your next door neighbor? That's our, that's, 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 we're catalysts. That's who we're called to be. So it's very, it's by nature. You can't get out of it. The second aspect is a catalyst is a catalyst by choice. And I already hinted at this. Again, if you choose not to be involved, it's, you're still choosing. Well, I, I choose not to be involved. That's still a choice. So literally being a catalyst in our community, it's, boy, this is, it's rough because I get, I get involved in these kind of conversations with family. And there's difficult decisions and choices, and there's difficult things sometimes to be said. And people say, well, I just don't want to get involved. That's still a choice. You're involved by your lack of, by your lack of saying. I mean, you understand ministry sometimes is not easy. I did this study years ago on judging because it was people said in the church, well, you're not supposed to judge. You know how silly that is, actually? One of the reasons I like Mark and your church is because you guys are some of the most judgmental people I've ever met. I just love it. In fact, I was here uh, two years ago, and there was a guy that had a 16-year-old girl and the, uh, daughter in the youth group, and he, was, he came to me, and he's telling me about she had good girl, but she made some crazy decisions on a Friday night before revival started. Um, she comes in and tells her mom and dad, hey, I'm going out with some friends just for a little bit. And it was like 11 o'clock. And he hears all these motorcycles pull up out front of the house. And he goes out front and there's all these middle-aged men, beards, wearing leather jackets, you know, all of this. And he was like, I don't think so. And I remember thinking, wow, he's so judgmental. You make judgments on what your kids watch, who they hang out with, if they're going to stay all night with someone, who watches your children. You make judgments all the time. It's not bad to judge. There are two different, by the way, there are two different translations of the, of the Greek words, krino, krima, and krisis in the scriptures. Two different translations. One means judge, other means condemn. Jesus says, I did not, and the context decides how you translate it. Jesus says, I did not come to condemn the world. But he did come to make a judgment. You're supposed to, be, I mean, literally, you're going to know a tree by its fruit. You're going to make a judgment. The difference between judging and condemning, condemning is looking at someone saying, you don't deserve to be saved. Christians never do that. I don't care who they are. You cannot look at them and say, you don't deserve to be saved. 
You cannot look at a, at a predator and say, you don't deserve to be saved. That's just not biblical. If, if, you, if you feel that way, you need to repent. That's the, the Holy Spirit should be convicting you. So you are never to condemn. But you're supposed to make a judgment. You make judgments on who can work with the kids and who can. Literally, our district makes judgments on, the, on, 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 on like every two years. The board meets together and judges the pastor. He tells me about it. Yeah, we make judgments. That's not bad. It has to do with choice. Why? Because catalyst people, people that make changes, literally make choices. It's literally cowardly not to make a choice. And it's selfish when it comes down to it. Because most of the time, the choices are, that, that the refusing to make a choice is for my betterment, not theirs. Sometimes difficult choices have to be made in the lives of your kids. And your kids aren't going to like you. Ask my kids. Okay? We go through this every summer with bathing suits. Third aspect, super quickly, is that a catalyst lived by faith, meaning that literally um, faith is God, God producing. It's God perspective. By the way, the definition of righteousness is, is living by faith. Abraham demonstrated it. How was Abraham considered righteous? He believed, had faith in what God said about him. Seriously, I, Abraham believed and it was accredited to him as righteousness. That's what it means to live by faith. God comes and says, this is what I want to do with your life. And Abraham was like, cool. Which means we literally, in every circumstance with our community, we come back to the scriptures and our intimate relationship with him. And he says, this is what I want to do in, our, in your community. I want you to do it. And I want to be a part of it. Reproduce who you are through my life. That's faith. It's not based off your flesh. It's not based off your abilities. You are a catalyst of what God wants. You literally become the, you literally become the event where that world sees him. And you and I live intentionally every day with that. Now, this will get longer and much more complex in the second service want to tune in or come back. But I, I do, I want to encourage you. I mean, it's not hard to understand and not hard to realize that we, the only hope of our community is, is the church. Seriously, I really believe that. There's no amount of voting. It seems like this last election, people were really, I don't know, I struggle with that. People tended to think on both sides of the aisle that the answer was in the right president and the right human individual. I just thought we were barking up the wrong tree. I mean, I have my opinions on politics, but at the end of the day, we're not to put our trust and faith in a person. We're put our faith and trust in him. And part of the problem with Americans, we're just not involved, man. If we want to see, if we want to see change in our community, you've got to get involved. You're the catalyst that's going to produce change in our, in our world. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for the truth of your word. And I pray, Father, that, uh, that we would just embrace being the change agents in our world. Use us. We're salt and light. We, we're supposed to be a part. We're supposed to participate in the redemption of our world and our families. It's high time that we stop waiting for someone to come along and do it for us. We love you, Jesus. Call us back to our ministry. In your name we pray. Amen.